Welcome to Tidbits of Research. My name's Sparanda Sandu. I am so incredibly excited to be joined today by Emily Real, Associate Professor in the Department of Mathematics at Johns Hopkins University. Her research is on higher category theory and homotopy theory, and we dive into category theory in our chat, what it is, what category theorists do, what kind of questions she's interested in answering, which also brings us to higher dimensional categories, so stay tuned for that. She received the Association for Women in Mathematics 2021 Joan and Joseph Berman Research Prize in Topology and Geometry. She's a co-host of the N Category Cafe and was a founding member of Spectra. Okay, ready to go. Sure, let's go for it. I'm so excited. Emily Real, welcome to Tidbits of Research. I'm going to start small, scare quotes. What is category theory? Right. Uh, so a, a good friend of mine, Eugenia Chang, uh, likes to describe category theory as the mathematics of mathematics. So mathematicians are in the business of proving theorems. And these theorems are uh, sort of, you know, kind of timeless and universal in a way. So um, we do think of what we're doing as like a process of discovery that you're sort of recognizing patterns that are embedded somehow in the fabric of the universe, but it's not discovery like you're finding a fossil in the ground. It's not sort of tied to a particular object or a particular uh, time or particular place. Um, so instead, uh, mathematicians sort of start from these abstract uh, they, they give kind of an abstract uh, description of something that then becomes a mathematical object. So rather than think about the ways that you could pick up a sort of square table and put it down so it looks like you didn't move it at all, um, there's this abstract notion of a symmetry group. And, you know, that scenario is just one example of this. So mathematicians kind of take things that you encounter in the real world, um, give sort of abstract theoretical formulations of them, and then prove theorems about that. And what category theorists do is they sort of abstract away the process of doing mathematics. So we prove theorems about mathematical objects without ever specifying exactly what those objects are, whether there's something algebraic, like some collection of numbers, or whether there's something geometric, like some configuration of points. We have ways of proving theorems about those two different types of things simultaneously without sort of getting down in the dirt and understanding what a thing is. What makes studying category theory so interesting at like this point in time? So I have to answer that personally. I think, you know, just like everyone has taste in music, you know, some people like, uh, you know, some people like sort of classic rock, some people like indie, some people like jazz, some people like country, you know, I think every mathematician has their taste in mathematics or their taste in sort of techniques of proof. So for me, when I took my first course in category theory, I sort of fell in love right away. This seemed like exactly the style of argument I wanted to give. When I gave a proof in category theory, I was 100% certain I was right. I felt like it was fun to try and discover those arguments and understand uh, mathematics in that way. But I have very good friends who feel completely the opposite of me and would rather, uh, you know, think about dynamical systems or think about probability or do something else where category theory is maybe not the way to go. So, so why, why do it? Cause I don't know. It's beautiful. So, yeah. Yeah. So you said something that was really interesting, which was, you know, you were studying this and things just clicked 
And I think we often talk about mathematics using these kinds of words like intuition, or these are the natural kinds of questions we ask, or, you know, this is how we look at things. And sometimes this puts people off, even though I have a feeling like all fields do this a little bit. But how would you respond to saying math is for certain kinds of people, or maybe this type of math is for certain kinds of people? Right. Um, I mean, I'm definitely of the point of view that math is for everybody because, you know, sort of math, I mean, every everybody interacts with mathematics uh, just sort of in the course of their daily life, whether they, you sort of realize it or not. You know, I mean, it could be something as simple as like arranging the furniture in the room or like, you know, figuring out how the table is going to get into the room and through the door. You know, those are sort of mathematical questions. I think what distinguishes, you know, people who go on into careers that involve a lot of mathematics from people who don't is often the people who go into careers involving a lot of mathematics like math a lot more. And, <laughs> you know, it's it's maybe not so surprising that if you find something interesting and find something fun, you spend a lot of more time doing it and then you get a lot better at it and so on and so forth. So, I mean, I, I think uh, a lot of mathematical concepts, the reason I find them intuitive is because I have so much experience at this point thinking about mathematics. And so if it's similar to something I've seen before or thought about before or heard about before or read about before, then, you know, of course it would make sense. Whereas if you're seeing something for the first time, it's, it's really not intuitive because this is pretty wild stuff. And that's why it's so hard to talk about with people who don't have mathematical training. So, so I want to go a little more deeply, take advantage that I have you here. Sure. So there's the standard set theoretical foundation for mathematics, and it's been argued that category theory could be an alternative to set theory. Could you walk us through the story a little bit, like why it could be, why it could be more, or why we don't know for sure yet? Sure. So I, I guess I tend to think of this question more philosophically than mathematically. I don't think category theory is really intended as a foundation system in the way that people who study foundations understand foundation systems. But I do think uh, you could imagine a foundation systems where the philosophy of category theory is more baked in than it is in set theory. And those are foundation systems that I personally prefer. Um, so what do I mean by this? So there's this kind of point of view of mathematical objects, which is goes by the name structuralism. And so this is a question of like, what is the ontology of a mathematical thing? Like what is, you know, what are the natural numbers really? You know, because, you know, the natural numbers, so zero, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, you know, what is that really? What is a number really? You know, it's not a thing that you can find on the ground. It's not a thing that you can you know, find in the air. You know, what is it? Where does it live? So um, the structuralist point of view is that things within mathematics are characterized by their relationships to other mathematical objects, as opposed to like the way that you would construct an example of such a thing. So set theory is kind of focused a little bit more on the way you would build more complex mathematical objects out of sets. So in set theory, there are various different ways you can construct the natural numbers. You sort of start from the empty set and then uh, that somehow codes for the number zero. And then you take the set containing the empty set and that somehow codes for the number one. And then there are different constructions that you could use from there to code for the number two and the number three and the number Four, but those constructions are kind of beside the point. I mean, what the natural numbers really are is it's you know sort of an infinite collection, and everything has a successor. And if you're trying to define a function from the natural numbers, you can use this technique of recursion. And um, so the structuralist point of view is is you know that somehow should be the definition of the natural numbers. It shouldn't be 
you have some other construction and you prove this as a theorem, that definition should be where you start. So a, a more categorical approach to the foundations of mathematics would kind of privilege these sorts of definitions over particular constructions. What are the kinds of questions that you're interested in answering right now? Right. So um, I said a little bit about what uh, category theory is, but I didn't really describe what a category is. So maybe I'll try to do that briefly. Um, so, you know, mathematicians working in different areas um, study different kinds of things. So there are uh, people who study number systems that go by the name of rings, and there are people who study sort of the asymmetry, which that's something that goes by the name of groups. And there are people who study something called vector spaces. This is like the topic of linear algebra. And then there are people who study sort of geometric things like manifolds. And each of those names refers to a mathematical object. And each of those objects lives in a category. So there is a category of vector spaces. There's a category of rings. There's a category of groups. There's a category of manifolds. Um, and, you know, one of the things that you would do in category theory is you would start to ask questions about how these categories relate to one another. Is there a way to kind of bridge from the category of groups to the category of rings? Are there structural similarities between the category of rings and the category of vector spaces? You know, th those are the, the sorts of questions um, we'd answer. At the same time, you know, mathematicians are inventing kind of ever more complicated objects. And some of the sort of new, more sophisticated objects that people study today don't live most naturally in a category, but they live in uh, some sort of higher dimensional version of a category. And how does that work? So, uh, so categories kind of collect together different types of object, but they also collect together the functions that would uh, transfer from one object to another. So um, in linear algebra, there's these things called linear transformations. They're sort of represented by matrices that um, convert vectors in some vector space to vectors in some other vector space. And that's kind of that whole story. But in uh, sort of more sophisticated contexts, you'll have these transformations between objects, but then there will be transformations between the transformations and transformations between the transformations and transformations and all the way up. And uh, those uh, types of categories go by the name infinity categories. And um, I'm part of a big team of people just trying to figure out how all of that should work. What are some, again, this is a kind of personal thing, but what are some of the coolest results that you've found as you understand these infinite categories? Right. Uh, so probably my most significant contribution in this area is really the result of a long-term collaboration. So uh, when I was a PhD student, I sort of identified the kind of working mathematician in higher category theory who I thought was doing the most interesting stuff of anybody in the world and asked if I could go visit him. And um, this is his name is Dominic Verity. He is based in Sydney, Australia. And so I went and spent a few months down there. And we've been uh, sort of thinking together ever since this was 12 years ago now. Um, so we've written maybe a dozen papers in about infinity categories. And, you know, we have a different approach to sort of establishing kind of the fundamental theory of infinity categories. So infinity categories are meant to be in analogy with ordinary categories and ordinary category theory is a thing that you could read about in a book. And essentially what we're trying to do is write the analogous book for infinity categories. So it's more of a program than a specific theorem. There are a lot of theorems in that program, but it's more kind of the whole methodology and approach and also the exposition than uh, just a single result. A new way to think about it. A new way to think about it. That's right. Yeah. So. That's rad. 
But of course, like anything new, it's also kind of old. What we're doing is we're like taking ideas that had been applied in a different context and, and redeveloping them in this context. You know, sort of everything builds on the shoulders of the people who came before. I want to talk more about the books that you're writing because you've written a number. Mm-hmm. You released a book, Categorical, oh God, Categorical Homotopy Theory. Mm-hmm. And at the beginning of it, you include this quote of Bill Thurston, who's a mathematician who worked in topology. And it says, what we're doing is finding ways for people to understand and think about mathematics. Who are these people for you here? How did you envision this book being used by others? Uh, so I, I love that quote. It's from this really lovely essay on proof and progress in mathematics. Uh, you can find it on the archives. So I highly recommend it. And what Bill Thurston was kind of arguing against is this sort of narrow view of mathematical progress where, you know, the goal is to be the kind of the first person to plant your flag on some hill saying, I'm the one who proved this, and this is my theorem. And, you know, now everybody has to use my name whenever they use this theorem, you know, he's saying that, well, you know, there's, I mean, there are so many theorems that have been proven these days that, you know, another way, another kind of important goal for the field is for people to think about kind of uh, systemizing it all or sort of distilling these individual advances into a coherent narrative that you could tell somebody who's a, a student of mathematics and maybe only has sort of 30 hours to think about this subject, and then they're going to go on and do something else, you know, sort of make these sort of new research advances kind of comprehensible. So um, so I wrote that book when I was a postdoc at Harvard and uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is this really vibrant mathematical community. And uh, I had sort of specific people in mind who I were, were my friends in the community or acquaintances. And I thought this is, I, I wanted to sort of try and explain some of the mathematics that I found beautiful and some ways of uh, thinking about these kind of technical tools that come up in homotopy theory that I found useful. And so that was really the audience. So I don't believe there are any new theorems in that book you know, sort of everything had been, you know, sort of quote unquote known already to the people who knew it. But the perspective, I think, was a bit different than, you know, would, would have been easy to find in the literature. And so that was really the goal is to say, you know, here's a nice point of view on these uh, concepts that you might have seen already. It leads me to the quote. Of basically, I was reading quotes in the introductions of your books. Sure. There's um, also category theory and context where you talk. Well, I don't. Gosh, I don't actually remember who says the quote, but it says the the aim of theory, um, which is to kind of systematically organize past experience and to make, you know, research go forward. To what extent do you identify with that? Yeah, fairly strongly, I think. Uh, so that's Satya. You know, I, I mean, I, you know, as somebody with a bad memory, I mean, you know, a, a, a thing that I worry about is how sort of how much there is to learn today, you know, and how, how hard it's going to be for, you know, mathematicians coming along a few generations in the future to, you know, not only learn all the stuff that we learned, you know, when we were students, but all the stuff that's being discovered today and will be discovered in the future. So I'm attracted to ways of thinking that uh, are still rigorous, you know, we're still mathematicians and we're not, you know, we communicate in metaphor, but ultimately we want a theorem that, you know, is you could imagine formalizing in a computer, maybe uh, formalizing the proof of in a computer, um, you know, so, so that are still rigorous, but sort of somehow take a broader point of view than would have come up in the original discovery. So for a theorem and category theory, for instance, so the, the way it tends to go in, in practice is 
There are lots of examples of that theorem that are proven in lots of different areas of mathematics. And then category theorists get interested and come up with a general version that specializes to all the proofs that had existed previously. You know, so if you're you're planting a flag, you know, the category theorists are never there first. <laughs> you know, we're <laughs> we're sort of way after, you know, the whole landscape has been cleared. However, it's I think it can be useful, you know, to somebody who's coming along later to, you know, rather than learning these sort of five different theorems and these five different proofs to have sort of one theorem and one proof that cover all of those different cases. So would you envision this as in the future a different way to teach things. So right now, category theory is kind of a, a grad level thing. You won't mm-hmm. really get access to it sooner, whatever, in, in a standard kind of progression. Yeah, that's an int- that's an interesting and provocative question. <laughs> you know, when is the right <laughs> time to teach category theory? So the book that you referred to, Category Theory in Context, was actually written as lecture notes when I was teaching an undergraduate course that I pitched as a kind of capstone for you know, senior math majors who, you know, have taken all these other courses and might appreciate, you know, having an opportunity to revisit some of the stuff that they'd seen once before from this kind of broader point of view. Um, And I think it functions really well at that level. There are people who try and teach category theory first, you know, maybe right after linear algebra and then, or even before linear algebra and then use it to, I mean, certainly it would be useful if you already knew category theory when you're developing abstract algebra and other, and other types of mathematics. But I don't know how easy it would be to understand the point of category theory without having these other experiences to use, you know, to cut your teeth on. So, um, but I think, it can, I think it can fit in an undergraduate curriculum if, you know, for, for a student who's, you know, taking a lot of theoretical math courses. If you're taking algebra and analysis and topology, I think category theory can sort of slot right in after those courses. Also in that book, maybe you say the aim of this text is to introduce the language, philosophy, and basic theorems of category theory. Mm -hmm. And what I'm going to point to is philosophy, because I feel like that might be something that keeps someone going or like help someone identify with the field. Mm -hmm. But I feel like very few books that I've read Maybe I should just read more. (laughs) Help me identify that. Mm -hmm. How did you identify this philosophy? You didn't have this book, right? (laughs) Well, it's, I mean, it's something you learn about when you learn the the subject. So there's, you know, the fundamental theorem of category theory is this thing called the Yaneda lemma. And it really embodies this idea of structuralism that we discussed before. So what the Yaneda lemma says that is an object in any category, no matter how complicated the category is no matter how complicated the object is, is entirely determined by its relationships with the other objects in the category. And that can be formalized by the sort of maps out of it or maps into it. So so that's sort of the structuralist philosophy is like built into category theory in a really profound way. And what's fun is when you first see that theorem, if you're learning this for the first time, it's like totally mystifying, you know, why would this ever be useful? <laughs> Why would anybody care? You know, the technical language in which that's stated involves some sort of, you know, natural isomorphism between something involving natural transformations. And those are all like kind of complicated terms. But over time and with experience, it's, it's like this, I don't know, it's sort of this extra like toolkit, this, this sort of magic superpower point of view is that if it's sort of too hard to sort of 
give a construction of an object and sort of understand it well enough at that level, you can sort of zoom out and think instead about its sort of universal property, its relationship to these other objects. And so it really does kind of feel like a sort of philosophy or a, a different point of view. Did you, it's kind of like a side note, but did you have a book maybe growing up, math or otherwise, that like really made an impression and made you say, damn, I wish I'd written this or like, I wish... Like, I want to write something that does for others what this has done for me. Right. I don't think I had a single book like that, but I, I loved reading um, fiction primarily kind of as long as I can remember. And I don't know. I mean, I, I read The Giver like 20 times in summer, Lois Lowry's The Giver when that came out. And I love, you know, the His Dark Materials trilogy. I don't know. I, I, I just sort of loved reading, but um, it felt like something that, I mean, that felt like something I could never do. You know, I have uh, <laughs> so much admiration for, you know, for novelists and, and writers. I mean, to sort of express yourself eloquently and, you know, kind of imagine these these worlds that, you know, maybe are quite like our own world or maybe are sort of very different and, you know, really bring these characters to life and, you know, make you fall in love with them. I mean, it's really a kind of magical thing. I think sort of my love of reading did kind of inspire me to, focus more attention on writing mathematics than I think is common. You know, I, uh, you know, mathematical writing is in a sense, a lot easier than sort of writing in general, because, you know, we have this very technical vocabulary that's very specialized and a word means sort of exactly what it means and not something else. So it's not so much looking for the clever metaphor to get illuminate the truth of an idea. It's rather, it's sort of expressing a logical argument as clearly and concisely as you possibly can. And somehow those constraints uh, made it seem more like something I could aspire to. Continuing in this in this realm, maybe, what other things, I guess, other than a mathematician did you envision potentially becoming? I mean, <laughs> I remember dreaming of being an astronomer or an astronaut. Nice. I don't know, may maybe briefly a musician. But I think I like the idea of being an editor. I didn't think I could be a writer, but, you know, maybe somebody who like worked with writers to <laughs> sort of perfect their books, you know, that seemed appealing to me, a journalist, something like that. Uh, but, um, you know, I'm lucky and I discovered mathematics pretty early. It was, you know, something I loved my whole life. And by the middle of high school, I had a sense of what mathematics was like as a career. And, you know, from that point on, this is really what I wanted to do. That's awesome. Do you remember the kind of like spark as it were? Yeah, it was, um, I started to learn about proofs. So I just, I had excellent mathematics teachers kind of the entire way up, you know, in elementary school, somebody gave me a worksheet about, uh, sort of base four arithmetic, which was just a really fun thing to explore. And, uh, in middle school, I had a, a teacher who, you know, had us solve these challenging word problems and then write up something that explained our solution. So the focus wasn't just on getting the number at the end, but sort of the explanation of the, the thought process. And I, I thought that was really fun. And, you know, in freshman year of high school, there was a teacher who showed me a proof by induction after school one day for kind of no reason whatsoever. And from there, I sort of accelerated and started taking kind of proof-based mathematics courses and you know, once I saw the kind of creative side of math and the kind of linguistic side of math, you know, it just opened up this this whole new world. And it, you know, I had a lot of interests at the time. I still have a, a lot of interests. You know, I'm interested in politics. I'm interested in sort of music. But I realized that mathematics was something that was endlessly fascinating and that I could come back to 
day after day after day after day. And so it sort of made sense to just kind of dive in and see how deep the rabbit hole goes. Mm-hmm. So stopping a little more on the music, mm-hmm. I read about your band, Unstraight. Mm-hmm. And I also, so I have some insider information here, but you had a band in grad school, The Real Man. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and you also play the viola. So tell me more about this, like music interest and mm-hmm. kind of what you liked about it? What kind of it fulfilled for you? Sure. Uh, I mean, classical music is just really beautiful. And it's, it's a fun, kind of meditative practice. I I, uh, sort of realized recently as an adult, like how remarkable it was that as a kid, I would, you know, occasionally, there'd be these sort of, you know, state orchestra weekends or something, and you would go and sort of rehearse like eight hours a day kind of sat in a chair. And I remember, you know, it was sort of, it was sort of physically exhausting, just hold, you know, you had a very good posture and sort of holding your instrument in a position and trying to stay relaxed. And, you know, but somehow that that was a thing that felt normal is to sort of tune everything else out and spend, you know, I mean, a more, more common rehearsal time is maybe two, two and a half hours sort of focusing on music. Um, I don't know. It's really cool. So um, I, I started playing viola when I was, in elementary school, there was a uh, strings program in the public school I was attending in Minneapolis at the time. And, you know, then in grad school, that sort of morphed into guitar and then in postdoc into bass. And I still sort of dabble with whatever. So. Anything that comes your way. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. You also played Australian rules football quite proficiently. Mm-hmm. What was your favorite part about it? Uh, it's such a beautiful game. <laughs> I'm glad you asked. So I, I was a rugby player in college. That's, that's kind of the history. I transitioned from cross country in high school to rugby in college. Just, I don't know. I, I really like the community. And when I went to Sydney to visit this mathematician, I really admired. I had vaguely heard of Australian rules football and thought, you know, it might be a fun thing to try while I was down there. And it's, it's such a beautiful game. It really, it combines kind of the best aspects of soccer, which can be kind of very fluid and open. And, you know, there's not a lot of structure. There's not a lot of stopping. You just kind of run around and try and get open and Mm -hmm. uh, you really need to work together. Um, You know, if you're sort of nothing, if you, you can't get somebody to pass you the ball in exactly the right position at exactly the right time. So Australian rules, rules football is like that. So it's a, it's a contact sport. If you have the ball in your hands, uh, you're liable to get tackled. And if you get tackled, it's a turnover. It's you were holding the ball too long. That was that's kind of the interpretation of the rule. So so when you have the ball, you you know very quickly either try to sort of punch it out of your hand or kick it and sort of punt it to a, a teammate down the field. And the field is a cricket pitch. So it's um, you know, much, much larger than a soccer field or an American football field. So there's no possibility of running from end to end. Uh, you're really relying on your teammates to kind of run within range and then catch the ball, hopefully, and then punt it further into somewhere else. So I don't know. It's just, it's a lot of fun. It sounds fun as you're talking about it. The contact thing is not a thing for me, but I, the, the other bit. <laughs> well, you get used to it. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, that's also an interesting aspect. I mean, this for me happened more in the transition to rugby from cross country, you know, uh, <laughs> like the first time you fall to the ground, you know, you sort of lie there for a while and feel kind of sorry for yourself. And, uh, <laughs> you know, after a while you realize, you know, actually this is okay. I'm, I'm not hurt 
you know, I can get up. And in fact, if I got up quickly, then I could, you know, do something useful for my teammates down the field. And it's sort of a, a new mode of being in your body. And I, I don't know, I've, I just appreciate that. Yeah. You also learn how to fall, you know, so you don't want to put your hand out if you're falling because, you know, you might break your wrist. And uh, I mean, in fact, I, I did break my arm once playing rugby. So, um, but if you, you sort of turn and take it on your shoulder, you know, that's a pretty gentle, protected way to fall. And so I feel like it's a life skill somehow learning a little bit of contact. <laughs> yeah. <That's true. laughs> so. um, maybe segue back a little bit in, into mm. math, because mm. there is something that I really wanted to ask, and it's related to automated reasoning. Mm. I read a bit about one of the projects I think the proposal is called Toward Mathematical Intelligence and Certifiable Automated Reasoning. Mm -hmm. Sounds very cool. How are we defining mathematical intelligence? Right. Uh, <laughs> who, I mean, who knows? <laughs> but, so uh, there is a kind of new development in mathematics that is very niche at this point, but something I'm really drawn to and I've um, started to explore a little bit in my research. Um, and this is the idea of using a computer proof assistant to uh, verify the steps in a proof. So, so some of the pioneers in this area are, you know, very sophisticated mathematicians who realized that at this point, the arguments that they were making were sort of so complex and so subtle and so complicated that nobody was really checking every single detail in their papers. So um, you know, the proofs were long and, you know, involved arguments that were sort of similar to simpler arguments that, you know, were familiar to the people who'd read them in the past. And so it's, it's just really hard to kind of have the energy to sort of check that every I is dotted, every T is crossed. And um, the result is then mistakes would enter the published literature and persist for a couple of years before being discovered. So there's this idea that maybe mathematicians could take advantage of uh, computers to uh, essentially write two versions of a mathematical proof. There's one that's, you know, for the human, which, you know, focuses on the essential ideas, you know, kind of the, the main arguments, the, you know, this is the important part of the story. This is the thing that you would tell your friend in the same field if you've proven something and you're excited about it. This is the fundamental reason somehow why it's true. This is how it changes our understanding of what's going on in the scenario. And then at the same time, there's this kind of computer assistant that you could have worked with in private, you know, to sort of verify every step line by line by line by line. Um, so today that's, you know, quite a kind of complicated and involved process and something only sort of experts are doing and only people in kind of certain areas of, of math. But, you know, the vision is in the future, there will be uh, these libraries that, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, a mathematics library you know, I have various books in my office. And if I want to use a lemon, I don't quite remember the statement. I could go look it up. The idea is you could use a computer to also call up the statement, but also the proof, and then use that as an ingredient that you would slot into a, a new proof. The, the mathematics uh, involved in this is being implemented to some extent already in uh, kind of computer science. So, you know, if you have written a computer program that's going to be used for something sort of very important, maybe like flying a plane, you know, you want to verify that it's been, it's going to function as intended. It's, you know, there aren't any bugs, there aren't any flaws in the algorithm. And so these proof assistants were sort of originally developed with the aim of verifying software and proving mathematically that 
the program is going to function as intended. And so now those ideas are uh, being developed within mathematics as well. So essentially it's another way to kind of uh, be certain or be confident in what you're doing. So you're trying to prove that your proof is, is correct. And I read that you've been using these in some of your undergrad classes. Yeah, right. A little bit experimentally. So, yeah. Why did you decide to include it and how is it going? Right. <laughs> so I think it's a really, I think it's going to be really helpful if you're just learning about proofs for the first time. So, um, you know, the kind of the way a mathematical argument is structured is you have these assumptions that you start with at the beginning, and then you have the conclusion, which is the thing you're trying to prove. You might sort of assume you have a number and it's greater than three and it's a prime and it's so on and so forth. And then you're trying to prove what its residue is modulo four or something like that. And along the way, you know, each step in the proof uh, sort of uses these assumptions as its ingredients, and then we'll produce new conclusions that can be then used in the next step of the proof. And you have to be kind of very organized in your, in your head to kind of keep track of what it is you've shown already, what it is you're still trying to prove. If there are different cases in the argument, you need to remember to come back and uh, deal with the case that you sort of set aside when you were proving the first case. And a proof assistant is really sort of an interactive thing that does all that bookkeeping for you. So um, it will record exactly what the assumptions are at the start and we'll update along each line of the proof. So you write the first line, it'll say, okay, well now we know in addition this bit of information, but we have this additional task, which is to prove this bit of information and, and so on and so forth. So I think it, it can just be really helpful in learning to think through these things clearly. I mean, there's also a philosophical component. The pedagogical component is I think it can be a, a useful technical tool You know, when you're trying to learn how to write a proof. It gives you feedback right away, which is one of the hardest things. I mean, students often you know, submit their homework and they'll get it graded maybe a week later. And at that point, they've forgotten what the problem is. And so they're, you know, they've made a mistake, but they, they don't really, uh, it's hard to go back and remember exactly where the issue went wrong. Whereas the proof assistant will say, I don't believe this line, <laughs> you know, and you kind of have to confront with that in the moment. So it's definitely pedagogically useful. Uh, I think it's also sort of philosophically interesting. So when you're writing a proof in a computer proof assistant, it feels a lot more analogous to, you know, writing a program or giving a kind of constructive definition of a function. And there is a sense in which these processes can be understood as the same thing. And you really get a visceral sense of that when you're interacting with these proof assistants, whereas you just sort of think about it in theory, it's it somehow doesn't sink in quite as far. So there is this image of the lone mathematician. Mm. There's some pressure to produce, like to publish alone. I, mean, I get the feeling I get from reading so much about you <laughs> recently and, and talking to you today that mathematics is about community for you, partly. Mm -hmm. Do you think then that that would help with mathematicians feeling like we should address certain social issues today or acting in a certain way as a community? Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, I mean, I definitely think mathematics is all about community. Uh, you know, all of my research is collaborative. You know, a lot of my week is kind of structured around meetings with other mathematicians I'm working with or with students or with uh, mentees and things like that. So, you know, I think that's unquestionably true. And that this is very typical, by the way, the, the lone, I mean, I think this is your experience as well, the sort of lone mathematician stereotype is not common these days. I think a lot of people like to work together and um, it's, you know, almost all papers you see are, have multiple authors and, you know, sometimes very long lists of authors. So I think that's really cool. I mean, there are then, of course, social questions that come into play when you have collaborations. I mean, you know, you have to think about 
you know, is everybody in this collaboration feel kind of equally comfortable, you know, voicing an opinion and who feels like they have ownership over the direction we take or the sort of the style of writing, you know, sometimes these are kind of silly things, like whether we use British English or American English spellings, you know, but um, other times there's sort of more serious mathematical disagreements. And I, I think you're absolutely right that uh, the sort of increasingly collaborative nature of mathematics really forces the community to confront some things that weren't uh, discussed so explicitly in the past. Do you have an example? Uh, <laughs> not so much from a collaboration, but from conferences, I've certainly observed, you know, that different speakers are sort of treated in different ways, in, in, in ways that are both sort of good and bad. So, um, you know, as a relatively young woman, I think people in the audience have a lot easier time interrupting me to ask a question. And, you know, on the one hand, that's wonderful. I mean, mostly that's that's a wonderful thing because the whole point of giving a talk is to communicate something. So if something I've said is confusing, you know, people should ask a question and then, and that's great. But I've also seen this, uh, something similar where people in the audience are sort of more likely to assume that a young female speaker has made a mistake than they would somebody else. And uh, that's obviously a lot more problematic. <laughs> so. I think that's a that's a great way to stop. Emily, thank you so much. This has been so much fun. And we went to so many places. <laughs> yeah. Sure. That, yeah, it was a lot of fun. No. Yay. <laughs> Thanks so much for the invitation. Gosh, I loved this chat. And I loved how many things we ended up talking about. And there are so many little tidbits she mentioned that I keep coming back to, like mathematicians being in the process of discovery of patterns embedded in the fabric of the universe or how her love for reading inspired her to pay close attention to mathematical writing. Or, and this might be my favorite, what is a number, really? <laughs> if you're interested in checking out some of the books we talk about, I'm linking Emily's webpage in the episode description, so check that out. Also, Emily's old band that we mentioned a little bit in our chat, Unstraight, released the EP they started recording back in 2015. There's also a link to that in the description. Our music is Float and Fly by Golgartelli. Thanks for listening, everyone. I will talk to you again soon.